Hey, welcome to Plant Yourself. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Two quick announcements before we get to today's show. If you're interested in becoming a health coach, I'm offering another run due to popular demand for people who can't make 8 p.m. on Wednesday nights, Eastern Time. So we're doing another run of the program, which will meet the practicums will meet at 10 a.m. on Wednesdays, Eastern Time U.S., which means if you're in Europe or Africa, uh, that might be good for you. Also, if you're in the US and evenings aren't good and you have free time in the mornings, either 7 a.m. Uh, Pacific time or 10 to 1130 Eastern, then you can participate. If you want to find out more about becoming a wicked effective health coach, you can go to wellstartcoach.com. Second thing is, if you're not aware of it, Josh Lajani and I have a book that is free on Amazon Kindle. It's called Sick to Fit. And if you just go to Amazon and search for Sick to Fit, you'll be able to download it for free and read it on any Kindle enabled device, even a phone, smartphone, tablet, computer, whatever. All right, let's get to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com, the Big Change Program and Well Start Health. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a wise and wonderful life. Today's guest, Gregory Walton, is kind of one of my academic heroes. You know, he's not that well known in the outside world, but his work has informed and been informed by some of the giants of psychology today, people like Carol Dweck, the uh, author of Mindset, who uh, came up with the distinction between growth and fixed mindsets, and has influenced uh, Kelly McGonigal um, in her work, The Upside of Stress. Whenever I was researching new techniques and interventions to help people change habits, Gregory Walton's name kept coming up. And one of his most compelling innovations is something that he calls wise interventions. These are brief, targeted experiences that can permanently change mindsets and create a cascading series of positive life events. For example, a one-hour wise intervention for freshman students of color at a major university reduced the GPA achievement gap by 50% for the next three years. So one hour and the effects lasted for three years and they were significant effects. So, so naturally, I wanted to learn all this methodology um, in helping people change their own personal bad habits around health. And so Gregory Walton was kind enough to give me 20, 22 minutes out of uh, his busy day and so this is going to be one of the briefer episodes, but fascinating nonetheless. And he also uh, turned me on to the work of Greg Sparkman, with whom he's collaborated and who will be appearing in a future podcast. Before we get there, just a quick reminder that the Big Change Program slash Well Start Health Next cohort is going to begin middle of May. If you're interested, you can go to bigchangeprogram.com and sign up for the test drive, and you'll understand what we're, what we're going to be up to. And also, um, Well Start Health is going to begin a coach training program. If you're interested in becoming a wellness coach around plant-based ideas, uh, give us a ring. You can just email me, howard at wellstarthealth.com. Okay, enough of that. Let's get to it. Without further ado... Greg Walton, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to talk to you about your your work on what you call wise interventions, wise psychological interventions. It's some of the most 
interesting and exciting stuff. And actually, for, for me, who's been sort of a, a coach and a, and a producer of interventions, it's kind of a bummer because, you know, I, I like the things that are like dramatic and I get to look like a hero and be amazing. And, and you write that the, the hallmark of these wise interventions is that they're ordinary, brief and precise. Could you first tell us what, what a wise intervention is? Yeah, we use the word wise in a very specific way. It doesn't mean uh, good or effective. It really means psychologically wise, wise to uh, the psychological experience of a person in a setting, um, particularly wise to uh, the meanings that that person's inferring, how they're thinking about themselves or how they're thinking about other people or how they're thinking about a social situation that they're in and um, how in some ways uh, we can um, start to think about those things in ways that hurt our outcomes, how we can change those interpretations and those meanings to help people uh, lead more uh, fulfilling and lives and, and to flourish. Yeah. Great. So what, what's the, the, uh, the basis of the wise intervention? Is, is it the work that, you, that uh, Carol Dweck sort of pioneered on mindset, or does it come from other places as well? Um, you know, it really comes from the whole field of social psychology. Uh, social psychology as a field uh, began um, directly with an interest in social problems. It began um, in the, uh, the mid-20th century, uh, thinking about, in many ways, the problems of the mid-20th century and intergroup relationships. Um, how did the Holocaust happen? How do people work together in groups? How can you, um, how can you reduce intergroup prejudice? Uh, and... Uh, social psychology began with an interest in those problems. Uh, it began to understand those problems uh, over the course of the 60s and 70s and the 80s, increasingly in laboratory settings where uh, researchers would take, uh, take problems, they'd bring them into the laboratory, they'd try to bottle very specific processes that people were experiencing in the context of those problems. And now, uh, with the, the understandings that we've developed through that work, we're able to go out into field settings and to um, address those um, processes in ways that can produce a sustained change in people's lives. Gotcha. So some of these wise interventions would almost seem magical in terms of the, the inputs and the outputs. So you know, what, what's your favorite sort of uh, you know, elevator speech wise intervention that you can share with us? Yeah, so a lot of the work that my colleagues have and I have done has been on what's called the social belonging intervention. And um, this is work uh, that um, was really inspired by basic laboratory research in social psychology by Claude Steele and Josh Aronson and Steve Spencer and others on what's called stereotype threat. Um, and the idea was in that work that, pe that people, uh, when people walk into settings where they have to perform well, if there's a negative stereotype about their group in that environment, that can be really threatening and disruptive. People can worry, uh, you know, will somebody, if I do badly, will people think that people like me can't do well? And so what we did in taking this into field settings was to ask the question, well, when people go into new school environments, when they're entering a new school, when they're going to a new job, uh, often people wonder, is this a place where I'll belong? Is this a place where... Uh, where uh, people will value and respect me. But if you're walking into a setting where your group is underrepresented and negatively stereotyped, then you can experience that, that pressure even more so. It's a more pervasive, persistent feeling. Will people really value and respect somebody like me? Can people like me belong here? So uh, what, that, 
what that process can do then is it can make people uh, it can create ambiguity about what negative events mean. If somebody, if something bad happens to a person, if you get, uh, if you feel isolated, if you're excluded from a social event at school, and you're wondering whether people like you can can belong there, it's easy to wonder: Is this a place where maybe this means that people like me don't belong in general? And that that worry can make you disengage. So the belonging intervention is uh, an hour-long experience uh, that people go through in its original form, uh, where people learn about uh, other students' experiences in a transition, like a transition to college. And what they learn is that it's normal to worry at first about whether you belong, and it gets better with time. And what that's designed to do is to convey to people that when they're going through a challenge, when they feel left behind by friends or when they're criticized by a professor or when they feel lonely or homesick, it doesn't necessarily mean that they don't belong in general or that people like them don't belong. Now, that intervention was delivered in an hour uh, uh, at the end of students' first year of college uh, in a selective university. And for African-American students who are underrepresented and negatively stereotyped in higher education, it raised their grades over the next three years of college, reducing the achievement gap with white students by 50%. Now, that can look like magic from the perspective of um, inputs and outputs, as you say. You do something for an hour, how could that possibly last, uh, have a, an effect on a meaningful outcome like GPA over three years? And yet, for a student who's sitting there in college wondering whether they can belong in that environment, whether people like them can belong, learning from older students' stories that it's normal to worry at first about whether you belong, that many students do, that it gets better with time, can be really transformational. So I've been, you know, trying to figure out how to apply this to, to my own field in, in, in health. And one, one of the things that I notice is that everyone has a story, everyone who comes to me has a story of, I tried and I gave up. And so they've got this... Um, sense of themselves as I, I'm a quitter. I can do it for a while, but I can't maintain it. And so I was wondering if, you know, if there are wise interventions around reinterpreting a slip up, like, you know, everyone's human, everyone makes mistakes. Um, is that something you think also can be amenable yeah, I mean, I think, to that sort I think, of shift? Yeah. Many interventions, uh, many wise interventions are about change and change the possibility of change. And uh, one of the things that's really important about them is that they don't claim that everything's going to be easy um, or that change is not difficult. Instead, what people learn often is just that change is possible, that it's always possible, and uh, and that can be empowering for people. So, for example, in, in work by Carol Dweck and Iran Halpern on the Middle East peace process, um, Israelis and Palestinians who learn that groups can change, that it's possible for groups in general to change, become more likely to make concessions to the other side and, um, and uh, have more positive attitudes uh, towards the other side. In work by David Yeager uh, and others on uh, adolescence experiences of bullying in school, uh, learning that that um, people can change, that individuals can change, that bullies need not always be bullies and victims need not always be victims, that can um, help kids uh, react less uh, to experiences of bullying, to, to be to aggress back less, to experience less stress, to miss less school, and to uh, ultimately do better um, in school. Um, and, you know, growth mindset interventions, uh, which convey that intelligence is not a fixed quality, but something that can grow and develop. 
those interventions help kids stay engaged when school's hard. Uh, in, from the perspective of a growth mindset, if you fail a math test, it doesn't mean you're dumb at math. It just means that you haven't gotten it yet. And that can help people uh, make that sustained progress that creates change. So one of the ones that really surprised me in terms of inputs and outputs, and even, even the relevance of the input, is the, the value affirmation work. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a study that you talk about in, in your, uh, your paper on psycholo- wise psychological interventions about undergraduate women wrote about why their most important values were important to them. How does, yeah. that, how do, how does that help with you know, health and weight loss? It doesn't even seem related. Right. So, so one of the um, insights from work on value affirmation uh, is that we often walk around the world uh, feeling um, not okay, not okay about ourselves. We feel what psychologists call uh, under threat. And that threat can take a variety of forms. It could be a stressful test that's going to come up. It could be a um, sort of pattern of interactions or relationship with somebody who you're close to that is is not a positive one. Uh, It could be an experience of identity threat in school. Um, And uh, that uh, sense that you're not okay can lead people to um, to do various sorts of dysfunctional things, uh, like um, people can, for example, dismiss uh, information about health that could help them. So sp- smokers, for example, who are given information about the health risks of smoking can dismiss that information in a kind of defensive way uh, because to accept it would be too threatening to themselves. It would, be, it would make themselves too at risk. Uh, people uh, who, who drink can also do that with information about the health risks of alcohol. They can defensively dismiss that information and then not act on it. And what affirmation is, is a tool essentially to make people feel okay. Uh, not better than other people, uh, not necessarily great, but okay with a capital O and a capital K, like really solid. And what it involves is it involves people uh, uh, thinking about a list of values, identifying the values that are most important to them personally. So things like relationships with friends and family or having a good sense of humor and uh, then um, writing for a few minutes, maybe five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes about why and how those values are important to them and times that they've mattered to them. And when people are otherwise experiencing threat, um, being able to reflect on values uh, uh, brings people back to uh, uh, all of those different aspects of themselves that make them feel uh, like a decent and good and competent and um, moral uh, human being. And then when things happen, when things seem threatful, threatening or, uh, or, or fearful, they can respond to those in more productive, proactive ways. So for people who are, uh, who are overweight, uh, for example, uh, it can help people uh, to um, engage with weight loss uh, and you know, exercise and, um, uh, and eating uh, healthy in um, more balanced ways uh, that are, 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 less, um, are more rational and less threatened. And thus it can increase weight loss. So, so that, that seems like it's something that everyone could sort of self-administer pretty inexpensively and, and easily at any time to say, you know, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write about my values or I don't know if thinking about it is, is as good or nearly as good. But it seems, it seems yeah. like if my, if my problem is I, I get, you know, hijacked by these urges when I don't feel good about myself, then 
And it seems like this is a good a good mental exercise to do every so often. Yeah, I think people have different you know different ways to handle um, to handle stress and to handle themselves uh, and the the challenges that uh, that they face in their lives. And this can be a good one for people. Um, I think it is helpful to actually write it um, rather than to just think it. Um, I think it's helpful to like sit down with a piece of paper and. Um, identify some values that are important to you and, and write about why they're important to sort of bring you back to your your truest sense of your truest and broadest sense of who you are. Um, and then uh, to move on from there to take on some of the challenges of the day. It's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's cousins with things like mindfulness practices, which uh, can also be helpful. Hmm. So I first came across your work in... Um a book by Kelly McGonigal, um, The Upside of Stress. And there she, she was talking about, I think, a, a, like a three-step process whereby the, the third step was to teach someone else or to share your story. Can, can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think often one of the um, things that happens when we talk about interventions is we think of the people who were intervening upon as uh, kind of passive and weak recipients, that language sort of uh, lends itself to that representation. And uh, yet the recipients of interventions are all of us all the time. I and mean, we're, we're, we're all the time struggling to deal with the challenges of everyday life. And, um, and so one of the most powerful ways to convey ideas that can um, get people to really understand an idea and connect it to their lives and then to um, and then to use it for their own good is to give people um, stories uh, and information that captures something important, like, um, like for example, the idea that intelligence can grow or the idea that people uh, can worry at first about whether they belong in college and it gets better with time. And then to ask people to tell their own version of that story. How is that how has that idea been true for them or mattered for them or played out in their own lives? And then people can connect the abstract idea or the idea that other people have described, the story, the, the interpretation to their own experiences in a way that can, um, in a way that can um, really uh, come home for them. Mm. So, th so they're, they're constructing the meaning of that for themselves. Yeah, so it's like often what uh, uh, one point is that often people don't take time out to think directly about these things, uh, like how do they think about intelligence, or how do they think about stress, or how do they think about um, the you know the possibility that groups could change or groups couldn't change. So one thing that the intervention does is it gives people a, a time out to think directly about something that matters, and then a second thing that it does is it gives them the structure with which to think about that. Here's a here's a, a useful way to think about this and here's how other people have sort of thought about this and then a third thing is that it asks people to fill that in uh, fill that structure in with the the kind of life and color of their own their own personal experience their own personal circumstance how is that true for them or how has that been true for them and that way people are taking a really active role in the process they're not passive beneficiaries and uh, often what they're doing in that writing task is they're articulating this idea for other people, um, other people who might be younger than them or less experienced than them. So they're actually um, taking the role of interveners, not intervention recipients. And that's empowering. Gotcha. So um, 
how do we design wise interventions in, in our own lives? You know, not, not necessarily in a research setting, but if we want to change ourselves or if we want to help someone else make a shift that they've told us they want to make, what, what are the questions we ask? Because my, 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 you know, my gut reaction is just to sort of copy what you've done and just apply it, whether it fits or not. But I know that's, you know, that's, yeah, that's not I mean, the right I, way to do it. I think, right. I mean, I think that, the um i think that there's two things that are true uh which have to be thought about together one is that the kinds of psychological processes that interventions have addressed to um improve outcomes are often ones that are broadly important um across you know different people different school contexts different personal contexts at the same time the form that they take and the particular way that people think about them uh, can vary in different settings. And um, so you have to uh, have expertise both in um, that psychological process and you have to have some expertise in the particular circumstance that you're working in, the setting that you're working in to really intervene effectively. Mm. So, so that's what you mean by wise. To, there, it's, not, it's not just from on high, but it's, uh, it's relational. Yeah, it's. I mean, I, I think that I think that what happens is that there are ideas that exist in the world. Um, those ideas are often, you know, an idea uh, like, for example, um, maybe uh, maybe some people are good at math and some people aren't good at math, and that's an idea that's reflected in society and in institutions in society, in something like a gifted and talented program, or in corporations that talk about talent or in um, interpersonal experiences, like when people say, oh, you're so good at math. And then that idea uh, uh, that exists in society, it comes into a particular form in a particular context, and it gets into people's heads in the form of, for example, the belief that um, maybe some people are smart at math and maybe other people aren't smart at math. And what you want to do is you want to interrupt that cycle, uh, that way in which the an idea that ultimately becomes maladaptive for a person, uh, how they how that comes into them, and, how, and then how they use it. Mm-hmm. So, so any so any idea that would sort of pr- predict a disempowered or a less empowered future could could be a, yeah, a subject it, for a wise right. Invention. And I think it's I think it's complicated, right? Because um, you know w- one of the things that leads to um, mistrust and feelings of non belonging for people who are in um, uh, underrepresented or minorities in context is their um, their awareness of the reality of prejudice and discrimination in society. It's it's its legacy uh, and its current state. And so when people walk into a setting and they say, "I'm not sure whether I'm going to belong in this environment because people in my group haven't you know haven't belonged here in the past," um, that's you know that's coming from the social context. And and yet uh, that fear that people experience can also lead them to interpret um, everyday events as meaning that maybe they don't belong and their group doesn't belong in that setting, which ultimately, um, you know, contributes to a disengagement. So so um, you have to you know think carefully about about when and how you intervene upon a process like that. Right. I I, I was struck when I read uh, Claude Steele's book um, Whistling Vivaldi at how complicated that is to, on the one hand, you want to be reality based and acknowledge that there are, you know, problems and limitations and 
that somebody somebody said something to you that may be transgressive in some way, but also the ability to miss all that and just sort of go, yeah. go about your day can be can be extra empowering as opposed to like the the thought that a lot of African American parents teach their kids that you've got to be twice as good, right? Which can actually ca- cause some of that stereotype type threat you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's a it is very complicated, and um, um, I, you know, I also think that um, in, in the in the context of that complication, I also think it's it's useful to think directly about the possibility that context can change in positive ways, even contexts that are not, not ideal uh, or that might be racist in some ways. Um, and one of the ways that they can change is when um, people in those settings um, can build the kinds of positive, positive relationships, peer-to-peer relationships, uh, teacher-to-student relationships, mentor-to-mentee relationships that um, you know, cultivate success for everybody. Mm. Right. So, so it's it's another form of uh, sort of seeing is believing, where you you get a, a a counterfactual to to your belief, and it's pointed out to you in a structured way. Um, yeah, and then you can see those models, and then as you see those models, you can see a, a representation of who you could become in that environment, and then as you can become that. The, situa- the situation itself, the social context itself, is changing for the better. So is, in a way, is this all kind of a, an end run around confirmation bias, where, where, you know, if I tell you, no, this is not the reality, you, that's the reality, that, that I'm likely to, to bristle, that this is sort of a, a way to, to, like, vaccinate people or, or, or go around their, their um, ego immune system? Yeah, I I think it's um I think in the context of belonging it's not there's definitely sort of confirmation processes but it's it's complicated when people experience belo- what we call belonging uncertainty they often want to belong in the setting they really want to belong in the setting but they are unsure whether they do and they fear that they might not and then when bad things happen just the presence in their mind of that fear can make that bad thing seem like the um, harbinger of the uh, uh, of its of the truth of the the fear. So if you're if you're walking around wondering whether people like you can belong, and then you get excluded from an event, it can seem like that means that people like you don't belong. If you didn't have that fear in the first place, you wouldn't draw that conclusion. It's not exactly a confirmation because it's not like you believe necessarily that you don't belong, but you fear that you might not. Mm-hmm. So this, this works best on those more, more ambiguous beliefs. But I'm also yeah. thinking about like, like the, um, the interventions with, with middle school kids that uh, Professor Dweck performed, where you can change someone's mindset from fixed to growth, which, seem, which seems like, you know, for a lot of people that I know with fixed mindsets, it's very, you know, everything... That they that they notice is filtered through the desire to prove that that the mindset is fixed. Yeah. Okay, I have to go to a meeting. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I know you sent me another paper um, to to continue this. I, I I love your work. I think it's some of the most beautiful and important stuff. And we will continue this conversation. Thank you so Great. much, Greg. Thank you, Howard. Bye bye. Bye bye.
Wow. What an honor to speak to Gregory Walton, whose work is so important and is going to affect so many lives so positively. Did you get any ideas for your own life, things you can do, uh, ways if you're working professionally that you can implement wise interventions? Let me know. You can leave a comment on the webpage for this episode, which is plantyourself.com slash 267. You can also leave an audio comment using uh, SpeakPipe, which you can find on each webpage right below the description of the episode. All right, so if you find this valuable and you find the other podcast episodes valuable, please do me a favor and leave a review on iTunes. Just take a few minutes. It's completely free, and it really helps the show rise in the ranking so that other people discover it. And again, Big Change Program, starting up mid-May. Check it out, bigchangeprogram.com, and you can sign up at wellstarthealth.com slash program. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 266 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. In garden news, we're treading water, waiting for the temperatures to get high enough at night so that we can put out the rest of the tomatoes and some basil and some other summer-loving crops. And in running news, things are doing pretty good. I did a couple of six-milers in the morning. I ran um, and ran into my friend Eamon, who runs much faster than me, and he pulled me along and reminded me what I'm capable of, which was a, a great blessing. And I'm off for two weeks now to uh, D.C. and New York City and Baltimore, and so hopefully I'll be doing lots of running in the mornings in those beautiful cities. All right, it's thanks time. Of course, thanks to Will Ridenauer for Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. And check out willridenauer.com for more of his music. And of course, thanks to all you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. There's a few new names this week, so listen carefully till the end. Here we go. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hathley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Alan Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barnes, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Volkanovsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elves Feldman, Victoria Dolan, Ovalia Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julianne Rollins, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, from the Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Peterson, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzik, Jeanette Ben and Gail, Sarah David, Donna Hugh Blair, Cyber, Dorona, Diaz of Gio, and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesen, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Orbeck, the Equally Mysterious, Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lindman, Rise with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Alderman, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, the Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Berth, Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corker, and Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant, Happy Oregon, Samin Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Cobble, Shell Rudlett, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Rowland, Linda Ayat, Julie Langholm, Hedegaard, Isa Tuzan, Wakani, Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Avivilla L, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Cherry Orlikowski, a Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen, Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carrelton, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Kelly, Baker, Miracle, Ann, Jesse, Cheryl, Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divot, and Joshua Summermeyer for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. 
Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barnes, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Filikonofsky, David Vizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Kara Adams, Tom Fronsek, Jeanette Benham, Gila Sert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Toronto Vizo, Gio and Carol Argentati, Jody Friesner with Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck. The equally mysterious Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harperson, Martha Bergner, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda, Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant, Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Shannon Hirsch, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Colm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzawa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis... Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Orlikoski, a plant powered for health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divid, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darmy Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McEntee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Lehman. Patty Martino, Mike and Donna Karts, Deanne Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bashford, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullis, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, Diana, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt. Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidorowska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught, Abedible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, and Danielle Roberts for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. As always, be well, my friends. <laughs>